Section 9 of The Vampire Nemesis and Other Weird Tales of the China Coast by Dolly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker. Section 9 Death Grips, Part 8. We reached the house at last, and the coolie lowered the shafts to the ground. I half stepped, half rolled out onto the pavement. Dropping a handful of coins on the flags, I staggered up to the door clinging to the rails, grabbing desperately at every slender means of support. It was much beyond my usual time for returning, and Ethel must have been looking out for me, for as I stumbled up to the door it opened ere I could touch it, and I almost fell across the threshold. Ethel's first expression was one of surprise. "'Why, Harry, where's your hat?' It was the first intimation I had of having lost it. I mumbled something in reply about having left it somewhere as I leaned up against the hat-stand, striving with that pitiful gravity a drunken man assumes to appear sober. My poor wife thought at first that I was feigning, and evidently admired my powers of mimicry. But as I stumbled into the dining-room and sprawled into a chair, her face, even to my blunted perceptions, showed traces of impatience. "'Come, Harry,' she said. "'Enough of this. Dinner has been waiting ever so long.' I looked at her with a maudlin smile and mumbled something irrelevant about my lost hat." Harry, she cried again, please don't act like that. You hurt me, dear. There was a note of pathos and love in her voice that penetrated even to my drink-sodden brain, but I only looked at her with that ghastly grin and tried to pull myself together. Do you hear me, sir? she said brightly, changing her tactics as she came across to me and placed her hands on my shoulders, with that imperiousness of gesture so characteristic of her. She was about to shake me playfully, but as she bent toward me, her nostrils caught the reeking odor of spirits in my thick breathing. She dropped her arms to her side as if I had struck her, and her eyes dilated with sudden wonder and something of fear. Harry, what is it? she whispered. It's all right, me dear. She had shrunk away from me a step. Now she came close to me again, regardless of that stench of the liquor, and laying a trembling hand on my arm, stooped and looked for a moment straight into my eyes. Harry, was all she said. It was as a cry wrung from a soul in agony. It's all right, I muttered again fretfully. Let's have dinner. But I could eat nothing, could hardly sit up to the table. Nor was her appetite any better. She sat watching me with the look of a stricken animal in her blue eyes. The tender mouth was trembling pitifully, and every now and then I saw her eyes glisten brightly. What was the matter with Ethel I could not make out? Why could she not be bright and cheerful as she always was? But when I rose from the table and staggering to a couch threw myself down to sleep, I saw her take out her handkerchief and bury her face in it, while great sobs shook her frame. I remained on the couch until the early morning hours, when sober and with a bitter loathing in my soul for myself and life, I crept up to bed. Ethel was lying asleep, the tremulous look about her mouth and the long lashes wet with recent tears. I dared not in my pollution lay myself beside her, so with a rug I curled myself on the sofa to doze fitfully and to dream until daylight of fiends issuing from the mouth of a gigantic bottle. The next morning was a time of bitter humiliation for me, and it must have held a torture far worse for my lovely young wife. When I awoke from the deep slumber into which, with the first approach of grey dawn, I had sunk, I was alone. I looked at the clock, half-past eight. Time I was away. What had kept me? Why had I lain on the sofa? Then with the flash that left me stunned and helpless, it came back to me, that and more. 
Not only the effect did I remember, the cause was clear and vivid. I saw now too clearly the reason of that vague dread of an unknown something that had possessed me. This was the elusive horror that my mind had been chasing in a vain endeavor to grasp and realize. This, to be possessed of a fiend, of a devil, as surely as the Galilean of old, whose aberration we used to read with a smile, as being but an empty figure of speech. And I had deliberately walked into the trap, nay more, had myself forged the chains wherewith I was to be bound on the wheel and broken. Bitterly I cursed the inquisitive folly that had urged me into allowing him to practice his black art upon me a second time, and had assisted him in his vileness by my own blind experiments. The man dominated my entire being. He was my master in spirit. He had the power to project himself into my body and take command of it. I felt, as I passed my hands to my throbbing temples, that I was at the beck and call of this unscrupulous scoundrel. He could make me come when he willed it, could make me do as he willed. Nay, more, he could make me think as he willed, or worse, could think for me and make my body act on the decisions of his mind. Fool that I was, I had walked blindly into the pitfall. I calmly surrendered myself to the claws of the tiger, and this had been the culmination, the culmination, the end. Was this the end? Would the devil be satisfied with this one disgrace? Might he not make me repeat the shameful performance in public as well to break the heart of my poor wife? what was yet to come. But I would fight against it, I told myself fiercely. With every atom of my intellect, with every nerve and fiber of my being, I would fight against it. And I must succeed. If there was a God in heaven, he must help one of his creatures to regain his independence. He could not stand coldly aside and permit such a frightful wrong. Fight! 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 That was my only hope. And with the depth of my resolution, my soul grew stronger, and the future assumed a rosier hue. Alas, I little dreamed as I dressed and went downstairs what my tortured spirit had yet to go through. I met Ethel at the breakfast table, her eyes red with weeping and her lips quivering. Perhaps her woman's intuition warned her that this was but the first step on the downward path. Ah, but she did not guess the force that had thrust me relentlessly forward into that state of bestial intoxication. I, who had never touched liquor of any sort before. And I did not tell her made no attempt to excuse myself, but sat there like a whipped cur trying to eat some breakfast with but one desire, to escape from those appealing eyes. Once I was on the point of telling her all, but I smothered the impulse. Of what use to tell her? She would not understand, even if she believed, and she could not help me. It was but adding to her misery. No, I must fight it out by myself. She never alluded to the night before. She hardly spoke a word except to give an order to the Chinese boy. She only sat there watching me with a sadness in her eyes that wrung my heart. Oh, my sweet dainty Ethel, could you but have guessed what I suffered then? What I suffered for your sake as well as for my own, and for that little one yet unborn. The Chinese boy, gliding silently around the table, guessed there was something amiss, for I caught him several times looking curiously from one to the other, as though trying to read in our faces the nature of the quarrel. Ethel, with quick decision, had sent him away the night before as soon as she grasped the true state of affairs, so he could have had no clue from which to draw inferences. As I drew on my coat before setting out, I looked over my shoulder to see Ethel's eyes still following me with a passion of entreaty in their blue depths that spoke to me more plainly than the most fervent torrent of words could have done. I walked down to the newspaper office with bitter rebellion in my heart against life, and the inscrutable power that orders things here below and permits such black villainy to go unchecked.
I was totally unfit for work. I was completely unmanned and trembling like a scared hare. And ever in the midst of my efforts to fix my thoughts on my work, I caught myself looking forward with dread to the time when I should have to quit the shelter of the office and go... where? But I reached home in safety, and the next day passed without event. The next was Sunday, and the blessed calm of that day stole over my spirits and I began to breathe freely again. Thank God my fears had been groundless. I lived through three days without feeling that terrible power, and in my relief I told myself that the dreadful phantom had gone. The effort had proved too much for him, and he had abandoned the attempt. Had I gone into that den of his on one of those evenings, perhaps I should have found him weak and helpless as I had seen him on that first evening in Range Road. Still, Ethel never alluded to that Thursday night, nor did I tell her a word of what had occurred. Now that I was myself again and free from the horror, there was less reason than ever that I should tell her. So I left her to think it was a sudden impulse of weakness to which I had yielded, tempted perhaps by some friends, and which I had promptly conquered as soon as I had realized my folly. End of section 9